Well, let's turn to our Bibles, uh, the book of God, in uh, John chapter 4, and uh, have a reading from there. Uh, We're we're breaking into uh, a continuation of of last week's uh, message. This is the account, the narrative of the the woman that Jesus met and spoke to, sitting beside the well. And um, the part that we're going to be reading just now from verse uh, 27 uh, breaks into two sections. Uh, First of all, from 27 to 38, there's a discussion with his disciples, firstly about food and then about a spiritual harvest. And then the second part, you'll notice, is from 39 to 42, where there's a discussion, not with his disciples now, but with the people from the town. So let's read that, uh, starting from chapter 4 and verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts uh, today. Well, this was pretty unexpected uh, as far as the disciples uh, were concerned finding Jesus alone, uh, speaking with a woman. Uh, It wasn't a done thing. It wasn't conventional at all. I think it's all too easy to forget, actually, just how radical the gospel of Christ was in terms of what were the social norms uh, at the time. Women were second-class citizens. Samaritans were social and religious pariahs. And yet Christ reaches out to all of them. Uh, The gospel is still for everybody. You know, there's not a kind of exclusive set. There's not a particular section of society. What we preach from the Bible, the book of God, it extends to everybody in the whole world. 
And everybody who sits in this room today, this is, this is for you, the gospel uh, of Christ. Uh, there's something rather symbolic about what this woman does. As they come, she goes back into the town. And the interesting thing is she leaves her water pot behind. I mean, that was the whole point of her coming there in the first place. And it seems as though she's forgotten that uh, because it's not physical water that she's received. She has, in fact, received the spiritual life, the spiritual refreshment, the spiritual water that Christ was speaking to her about. And she goes back into the town. And there it is, sitting on the side of the well. There's still that water pot, symbolically just making that point and sending out that message. You know, she's received the spiritual water that's more than the physical water that she was originally thinking about. You know, there, there, is, there is symbolism in, in, in much that we do in the church. I guess the biggest one, uh, from our point of view, is baptism. You know, something symbolic that we can do, that we can send a message without actually having to say anything with our mouths and with our lips. We can send and convey a message. You know, the old life is gone. The new one has come. I'm a follower of Christ. Here I stand. You know, this is me. And uh, she was making that point. Whether she meant to, it was there anyway. And when she gets back into the, the city uh, or the village, uh, verse number 29, um, she says, Come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could, could this be the Messiah? Could, could this be the Christ? Now, th this, is, this is the response of a true believer. You know, this is how a genuine believer reacts and, and responds once they have met Christ and have received what he has to offer to them. I mean, she's, she's, in, she's full of it, you know. It's just kind of bubbling up, and uh, it's infectious, and, and she just has to tell somebody, and uh, it just comes out of her. Even although, you know, she's not the most popular person in the town, she nevertheless goes back, and she has to tell them. And it's because she's discovered who she thinks he is, his identity. And this is a very big deal because the whole concept, of course, of the Messiah is something that's been building and building for generations and centuries. And now she's thinking, I think this is the Messiah. You have to come and see uh, how he is. And that discovery is, is all absorbing. And of course, that's the whole point, really, of John's Gospel, not just of this incident. We go all the way through and all the different things happen. The various signs are emphasized. The various statements that Jesus makes, I, the I am's. Until you come to the end, this is all written so that you might know who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, and, you, and that you might believe in him and might have life through his name. So the identity of Christ is something that should should grip us in the same way as it, as it gripped this lady. And I think the fact that this sense of excitement is often lacking, actually, if we're, if we're honest uh, with us, probably says something about how important Christ is on the Richter scale, you know, from our point of view. I mean, if we really sat down and thought 
about who he is and the fact that we have come to know him. I mean, how, how can we fail to be excited or moved or, or have the same kind of response as this woman has in wanting to tell somebody about it? Come, come and see uh, somebody about this. Well, the disciples begin to be a little bit confused at this stage because Jesus starts to speak in kind of allegorical terms. Um, they come with food. That's why they've gone to the village. They bring it back. And Jesus then says to, to them, you know, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And uh, Deliveroo, I don't suppose, were on the go uh, in those days. But, I mean, they were confused. They thought somebody else brought food, you know, and here we have this food. Maybe there's some other food. But, of course, he's speaking in spiritual terms. And the point that he's making is, you know, in the same way as food and water are our necessities for life, you know, we can't survive without food and water. He says, you know, there is, there is something in a spiritual sense that's food to me, that is an absolute necessity for me. And that food is to do the will of him who sent me. It's to, it's to do God's will. And in this particular case, that involved bringing the gospel to this individual, this woman, and then to the, the Samaritan village, who were completely ignorant, really, because they had their own kind of uh, homespun, kind of mongrel type of religion, you know, a mishmash of this and that. Um, and they really were ignorant as far as spiritual truth was concerned. And, and this, this was a necessity for him. That's why it says away at the start of the incident that he had to go through Samaria. You know, he, he, this was the thing that was a necessity for him to do. And, you know, being obedient to God's will is something that we should also view not as an option, but as a necessity. At the same level as eating food is a necessity for our physical survival. You know, we should look on following God's will. Now, it's not just intellectually. It's not just the fact that I, I understand this, I know this. The emphasis here is on doing the will of God. It's on following it. It's on obeying it. And again, particularly, that is in relation to taking the gospel to those who don't know it, who live their life unaware of the message of this book. I've just finished a, a brief biography uh, of William Tyndale, who was one of the very earliest and most influential of the translators of the Bible, just predating our King James Version in the early 1500s, um, translating it from the original, mainly the Greek New Testament, part of the the Hebrew Old Testament into English so that the boy who, who, who walked behind the plough could understand the book of God as much as any academic who, who stood on the pulpit. And uh, that was radical, but he devoted his life to that because the nation, our nation at that time, in the 1500s, were by and large ignorant 
of the Bible. We didn't know the message of the Bible. We didn't have it in our own language. And he devoted his life. It was his food and his drink. And he, he left. He had to flee this country uh, in his early 30s. And he never returned. And uh, he was imprisoned and betrayed and eventually lost his life, burned at the stake and strangled, you know, with his final words, open the king of England's eyes, you know. And we eventually, largely due to his commitment and dedication, you know, we have a Bible in our own language that uh, we can read and understand the message of God. And uh, I wonder what there is about that kind of feeling of necessity that I need to start to bring into my life. Not just knowing, but the necessity of doing as far as Christ was concerned. Now he takes us a bit further in verse number 35 because what he says is this. He says, look, uh, lift up your eyes. The fields are white to harvest. You know, it may well have been that what's actually happening here is the woman has gone back to the town and the people are coming, probably a lot of them with you know, white shirts and white cloaks on, and uh, as he's speaking this, he sees this crowd of people who are coming along the road to meet him at the well, and he's saying, lift up your eyes. You know, the fields are white to harvest. You know what it's like, you know, as the crops grow, they change color depending on on where they are and whether it's harvest time. And, you know, the point he's making is, you know, it's time, it's time to reap. It's time for the harvest. They've grown to that extent that the harvest time is ready. And what we all need to do is to lift our eyes up and just look. And, of course, they were looking at the people that were coming towards them. That's a message for us today. I mean, Lord is saying this to us. There is, there is a need for all of us to learn, lift your head up. Lift your eyes up and, and look around you. There's a harvest that is ready to come in. Problem, of course, is that often our heads are down and we're self-absorbed and uh, we're taken up with our own stuff and we're, we're, we're insular. And we're just absorbed with our personal affairs. And what Christ is saying to his disciples and to us today is lift up your eyes from all of that stuff and look at the fields that are ripe unto harvest. And it's fruit that is for eternal life. You know, these are the dimensions that are being talked about. That's how big. There is nothing quite as big as this kind of work. And we need to lift our eyes to it. You know, we need to lift our eyes to what is going on round about us just in the vicinity of, of this church here. You know, the work that is being done among little children at the various things that have been announced and advertised today. You know, if we lifted our eyes to that and saw that there is a need for a harvest to be taken in, I mean, if we were to look further afield, I mean, some of you know that I'm just back from India. And uh, as part of what we were doing, uh, we visited a, a hospital. 
um, who were celebrating their, their 50th year of existence. And my friend Ian had researched it a little bit uh, as far as the, the whole history of that 50 years was concerned. It all started with a, a Jewish family uh, in Nazi Germany. Uh, they had to flee uh, Germany because of that. Uh, came to Britain, heard the gospel, were converted. Uh, the daughter of the family uh, suffered from bilateral congenital dislocation of the hips. She had great difficulty mobilizing and walking and getting around. But she lifted up her eyes and she looked on the fields. And uh, the Lord laid on her heart the Godavira area, Narsapur in eastern India. And she went out to work there as a nurse. And she realized that in that Hindu community, particularly as far as maternity care was concerned, that uh, a male doctor was not acceptable. And so because of that, she returned to England. She recommenced her studies all over again, became a, a doctor, obstetrician, and then went back and started that hospital. Uh, which has served that community, not just in a medical sense, but as a whole means of demonstrating the love of Christ and the gospel is daily uh, proclaimed in the, in, in, the, in the hospital. And she only recently has passed away uh, to be with the Lord. But what, what an example, and how many more examples can, can we give? And by the way, we want to get into Christian biography and, and read these kind of inspiring stories of people who lifted their eyes. And they looked, and they saw the need all over the world. You know, and that's something that as a church is important for us, to, to support actually with our finances, to support with our prayers at our times of prayer, and perhaps to pray before the Lord that something might be laid on my heart personally. Maybe this is something the Lord wants me actually to do to lift my eyes and look on the fields. That's what he said to the disciples. But he said something else, actually. Very interesting. Verse 37. He says, Here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you didn't labor. Others have labored. And you have entered into their labor. Now for them, they, 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 they were reaping that day. This was a harvest that they were reaping. And it was a harvest that they had put themselves no work into. It had been other people who had labored. Others had sown. It was for the disciples to reap. And there are two categories that are spoken about. Now, we have no idea who the sowers were. We know who the reapers were, the disciples. We have no idea who these nameless people were who over the years, in that town, among that population, had sown the seed of the gospel and sown the seed of the word of God. But they are acknowledged. Now, now I, want, I want to encourage some of us here today. You, you've been sowing for a long time. You've been sowing the word of God and you maybe haven't seen it come to fruition yet. 
You know, the Lord is teaching us there are those who are given the ministry of being a sower, and there are those who are given the ministry of being a reaper, and one is not more important than the other one. It talks about both the sower and the reaper rejoicing together. I mean, Paul takes this up, actually, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians, who he said, you know, when I came to you, I sowed, and then my friend Apollos came along, and, and he watered. But it was actually God, at the end of the day, who gave the increase, wasn't it? And so can I encourage you, if you have been feeling discouraged, you know, the work that you've been involved in, whatever that work is, in your own family, you know, with Sunday school children, whatever you have been involved in, and you you think you're not seeing anything, well, maybe you're a sower, and maybe somebody else will come along later on and they will reap what you have sown so that you can rejoice together. Keep on sowing. If you want a, a good psalm to read for that one, it's Psalm 126, which says that those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing precious seed, will doubtless come again with rejoicing, bearing his sheaves with him. So that's the first part. Conversation number one. That's the disciples. That's what Jesus said to them. Now now we have another conversation. And, And it's with these people the people with the white shirts who've come out from the town. And he speaks to them. Now, this, this is remarkable when you think about it. I don't think there actually is another similar instance of this kind of thing in the entire New Testament. This, this is the whole-scale conversion of an entire village. All right? This is a revival. This is an awakening of an entire village that comes to faith in Christ. And uh, he stays for two days uh, teaching them. And the great thing that's emphasized here is this, that um, in verse 42, they're, they're speaking to the woman at this point, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. That's not the reason that we believe. We've heard him for ourselves. And we know now that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So they enter into a personal, individual experience of Christ, the Messiah, as their Savior. Now, I mean, in many senses, this is where the whole incident is leading up to. It's leading up to this this title, this description of Christ, the Savior of the world. You know, and we only understand that when we understand that this is a Samaritan village. It's not a Jewish village. I mean, I, I said earlier, the Samaritans were outcasts. If you want to read the, the background of the Samaritans, you read Second Kings chapter 17. After the Assyrian invasion, you know, the area was repopulated, but not with Jews, people from a whole lot of other nations, and they just brought in a whole amalgamation of idol worship and this and that, a whole corrupted kind of religion grew up, and that was detestable to the Jews, and they were, they were just off, off limits. And so that's the point. It's not just for the Jews that Christ comes. 
You know, he's the savior for the world, even for people like Samaritans. He's the savior for the world. And of course, it's at a personal level, not just the town, but each of the individuals that made up the town. They come to their own personal experience individually of Christ as their savior. Not just the savior of the world in a generic sense, but my savior. They look on him. I believe for myself, not just because you told me. I've met him, I've spoken to him, I see this, and for myself, he's my savior. Savior for me. And you know, and this is the heart of the gospel, is that when Christ comes not just to be a rabbi or a teacher, as it says here. He comes to be the Savior. And that, that, you see, is the deepest and most profound and fundamental need that we have to be saved from our guilt before God because we've broken His laws. To be saved from our shortcomings because they have consequences before God. The book of God tells us that. We need to be saved. We need a savior. I've uh, been enjoying reading through the book of Genesis uh, this last week. And in particular, recently, the story of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. And in particular, the point where Joseph is taken from the dungeon and uh, he translates the dream for Pharaoh and he's exalted to become the second most important person in the kingdom, you know, because of his wisdom. And the, the famine is coming. For seven years, Egypt will be devastated. But because of Joseph's wisdom from God, the land is saved. The land is saved. In fact, the people come to him. You read about this from chap- between chapters 41 and 47. And they said, you, you have saved us. Joseph, you've saved us. And in fact, Pharaoh gives him a name, Zaphath Panea. Some people are not entirely sure what that means, but some commentators translate that, the savior of the world. Here's Joseph in Egypt, you know, all round about all the other countries, stricken with famine. You know, they come to Joseph. That's what Pharaoh said to everybody. Just go to Joseph. He's the answer to everything. Everybody goes to Joseph. That's the man. The savior of Egypt. And the savior of the wider world. What a position to be in. What a title to have. Tremendous. And yet, that moves on. You know, that's one of these Old Testament glimpses, if you like, that pushes us forward to an understanding of Christ the Messiah who truly will be in a greater sense and can be for us the Savior of the world. You know, the whole point about, about sin and our need of Christ is when we understand just how desperate our predicament is. I mean, in Egypt, they, they knew. You know, their children were dying. There's famine year after year, seven years completely devastated land. They looked out on the fields. They looked out on the riverbeds. Everything's parched, cracked. 
you know, drought everywhere. They understood the situation they were in and the help they required. You know, turn that inward. Understand the drought and the famine and the need of our own hearts. Here's the Savior of the world for us. Here's the one that can help. Go to Christ, the Savior for you. You know, and that's, that's above everything else what we need. That's why he came. That's why the angels said, unto you is born this day in the city of David. What? What? A Savior. A Savior. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The gospel is the power of God unto what? Salvation to everyone who believes. And he is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. And this is the message that we have. The message about a saviour the saviour of the world. And so it stops here, this particular incident. We've met the woman. We've met the town. Christ is portrayed as the saviour of all. You know, in our world, with all the promises that are being made politically, um, it's all too easy to be drawn into the the whole kind of uh, political game. There There will be one day when Christ returns. And all the wrongs of this world will be righted. And the world will be saved comprehensively because Christ will reign. You know, he's the greatest one. That's what they concluded. That's what they said. And for us today, as we think about this wonderful passage of Scripture, for us to take that to our own hearts at a a personal level for me, not a second-hand thing, not riding on the coattails of my parents' experience or somebody else's faith, but to say, as we conclude, you know, not because you told us, but we found this out for ourselves, for myself, that you're the Christ, the Savior of the world. How shall we pray? Lord, thank you for this wonderful portrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can preach Christ crucified. We look to the cross and we see the work that he came to do, the food that was necessary for him to eat, uh, the, the suffering of his love so that salvation could be um, obtained by people like us. And so, Lord, we pray that we might learn to take that personally and also to lift up our eyes and look upon our world and its needs. May your word challenge us. We thank you for it, and pray that its message will stay with us as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.